Images of worship and sacrifice are used throughout Hebrews to highlight what Christ has uniquely accomplished through his death. Because we have received forgiveness through Christ's death, we live with sincere hearts by trusting in God's promises and encouraging love and good works from each other. The second reading is from Hebrews, the 10th chapter. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who have who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my heart, laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us not consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Last week, I told you that I had um, some favorite sayings, and that in the two weeks that I would be here on the Sunday that I was going to to share those uh, favorite, two of those say, favorite sayings with you. And you heard the first one last week. And that favorite saying was, um, he dared to believe through the deepest darkness. How many people remember? If you remember that from last week, raise your hand. He dared to believe through the deepest darkness. And the point of that was, When life gets dark and bad stuff happens and life says there is no God or life says God doesn't love you, because we as Christians have this relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we know that God is not responsible for the bad things that are happening to us. And we can believe, we can believe even in the deepest Darkest places of life. That was last week. This week, my saying comes from um, Emerson. And it is this. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. A foolish consistency means doing something over and over and over again without thinking about it and without figuring out if it works or not. And I've, There are several examples. One that comes to mind is in the movies. When people are talking on the phone 
and all of a sudden they're cut off. Got that? And what do they do? They go to the phone, and they push on the thing. Isn't that right? Now, when you push on that thing, what does it do? It hangs up. (laughs) Yet they're pushing on it to get reconnected. That's a foolish consistency. It's the hobgoblin of little minds. That is to say, it, it, a foolish consistency just takes over your mind so that you don't think about stuff. And you have to think about stuff. Now we would say, uh, now we would say you have to think outside the box. And you can't be trapped inside the box. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Now, can we have slide 15? Here is an example of a foolish consistency. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. They do it again and again and again, but it doesn't work. Now, can can you see how incredibly non-politically correct this is? This is an attack on someone else's religion. And according to political correctness, we're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to say bad things about other people's religions, are you? And yet... There it is. And the fact of the matter is that the Bible has already always been politically incorrect when it comes to criticizing other people's religions. What's the first commandment? No other gods. Well, that gets rid of everybody else, doesn't it? When you think of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, remember that story? And he had the contest? Remember that that. Elijah did not join the Mount Carmel Ministerial Association (laughs) with all the priests of all the religions. And when the priests of Baal lost the contest, I don't recommend this, he killed them. St. Paul, standing in Athens in the Aragopagus, looking up at the Parthenon, said, "You you see that building up there? There's nobody home. God doesn't dwell in buildings like that. The Bible has always been very critical of other faiths. Now, people are are, are free to believe what they want to believe. Uh, If Mr. Carson wants to believe that that the pyramids were built to store grain, he's free to believe that. But we're also free to believe what we believe and to speak our minds. And so we have this, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, even if the priests are sincere. They're sincerely wrong. I've thought about this uh, this week, and I've put together a... uh, an imaginary conversation between two priests. 
as they're doing that. And here it is. Well, another day, another sacrifice. Yep, let's get at it. How long have you been doing this? I've been doing this for 15 years. How about you? Well, I've been doing it for 12, but I'm the third generation. My, my dad offered these sacrifices, and his dad offered them before that. Our family's been doing this a long, long time. You know, I've been thinking about what we're doing, and I have some, I have some doubts. I have to wonder whether what we're doing really works. I've come to wonder whether offering animals as sacrifice every day, every day, every day can take away the sins of the world. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but those are the doubts that I have. Now that you mention it, I have those doubts too. But look, what if, what if there could be a sacrifice so great that all sins would be taken away for all people for all time? Now, we know that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We know that. But what if there could be this great sacrifice? I know we'd be out of jobs. but then everyone would have their sins forgiven. That's an interesting idea, but, but what could you sacrifice? We sacrifice goats. We sacrifice lambs. We sacrifice sheep. We sacrifice oxen. They don't do any good. What could you sacrifice? God would have to sacrifice himself. That's crazy. That would never work. I haven't. God would have to sacrifice his son. If God had a son, and God sent his son to earth, and somehow that son was sacrificed for the sins of the world, that would be a sacrifice that would do it for all people for all times. That God sacrificed his son. That chance of that happening, that chance. And Stuart Hine wrote, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin once, one sacrifice for all time and for all people. Next slide. And here's how the letter to the Hebrews says it. But when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until this, 
until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Once and for all. Now, I'm not telling you anything new today, am I? There's nothing new in any of this. Except I find it necessary from time to time to to remind myself and to remind others about the central teaching of the Christian faith. Once, one sacrifice for all people for all time. It's called the gospel. This is the gospel. Gospel means good news. Gospel does not mean truth. People say, oh, that's gospel. No, 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 no. Gospel means good news. The Greek means good news or a good announcement. We have news for you. The church is like NBC News or CBS News. We come to the world with news. We have more in common with NBC and CBS than we do with religion. I want you to think about this. I say, I say Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a news organization. We simply come to the world with news. Something has happened. And we make that announcement to the world. And you and I are people who have heard that news and believe that news. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's good news. Hear it again. I hand it on to you as the first importance, what I in turn had received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared. That happened. That's the news that we announce. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, is that right? That's right. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're in the news business. We're not in the religion business. And we come with with news for the world. Once for you and for all. Just before Jesus Christ our Lord went to to Calvary, he prayed a prayer. At the end of the prayer, Jesus said this, Holy Father, the world does not know you. Let me say it again. He said, Holy Father, the world does not know you. I know you, he said, but, but the world does not know you. And we meant, The world is Judaism, the religions of Rome, the religions of Greece, the religion of the the Phoenicians and the Egyptians. He said, Holy Father, the world does not know you. 
but I know you. As you look around at the world today, that's still true, isn't it? For the most part, the Western world does not know God. How many of you have ever traveled to Europe and gone to, your, gone to a church on a Sunday morning looking for a church? Anybody done that? And what did you find? They were empty. Churches hold five, six, seven hundred people, and they are empty. Europe hasn't known God for hundreds of years. Europe is largely secular. And our own, our own um, country is largely secular. There was this wonderful article in the paper yesterday. Anybody see this? It says, trend declines as nuns, N-O-N-E-S, don't return to church. Nuns are people who, when they're asked about their religion's pre- religious preference, they say none. And the article says that the nuns are not going to church. It used to be. We used to say, well, young people, after they're confirmed and they leave the church, and then they go and they whatever they do, but when they have kids, what do we say? They'll be back, right? They're not coming back. And the world does not know you. And then this sentence. More Americans are becoming less religious. That's what's going on. That's what's going on in our, in our society today. Jesus said, Holy Father, the world does not know you. And so we come with this news. Unfortunately, the world that needs this news is not interested in the news. About once and for all. I'm proud of the fact that our church, and I'm a member of this church, right? I'm proud of the fact that our church is in a shopping center. I love it. I love it. You know, we're not in a church building. We were in a shopping center. Now, I have nothing against church buildings. I've built them. But church buildings tend to stand for organized religion. And people today, lots of, most people are not interested in organized religion. Have you heard that? Oh, I'm not interested in organized religion. Well, they're not interested in unorganized religion. And they're not interested in disorganized religion. They're not interested in religion at all. And churches, buildings, stand for organized religions. But here we are, out here in the world. We've planted our flag out here in a shopping center. I love that where people come and go, we are in the world. Now, the folks out there, the one thing the folks out there are interested in is spirituality. You know about spirituality? Go to the local bookstore and look for the shelf that has spirituality. I have no idea what that means. But that's where the interest is. When we were in Sao Paulo, we went to a Christmas party uh, at the home of the, the consul general. And I was walking around with my clerical collar, and one woman came up to me, and uh, she wanted to make an impression on the minister. Okay, She said, well, Reverend, you know, um, we don't go to church. Uh, I'm spiritual. 
and I'm interested in spirituality. And I said, well, that's all well and good, but in our church, we preach Christ crucified. And she drifted away. She wasn't interested in Christ crucified. We have claimed this little bit of commercial America for Jesus Christ. We have planted our flag here. And when you plant your flag, that means you own the place. And we've planted the flag of Jesus Christ here. We've planted the cross here. Now, because we're here in this shopping center, will people come flocking in the doors? I don't know. I hope so. But if and when they come, what do we have to tell them? We have news. And what is the news? God so loved the world that he gave his son for you. He gave his life once for all people and for all time. Amen.